hustlers, road players, tournament champions. Hear the stories, get their advice, learn about their lives. Our host, Joey Ryan, brings you an inside look at the professional pool player. You're listening to the Pool Player Podcast, brought to you by Pool Scene 365. Hey, welcome to the Pool Player Podcast, uh, brought to you by Pool Scene 365. I'm Joey Ryan, your host. And if you're liking this content, do me a favor, like, share, comment. Let me know how I can make it better and subscribe to the channel. Uh, that way we can get more followers, we can get more interviews, and it's gonna be a lot of fun for everybody. Uh, today we have a real treat for you. We have a true legend in the game of pool. He's a four-time world champion, 16 appearances on the Moscone Cup team for the United States. He's a six-time Turning Stone champion. He's the 1999 US Open champion and the 1990s player of the decade and he was a first ballot BCA Hall of Famer. I'd like to welcome Johnny Archer to the show. Hey, Johnny. How you guys doing? Hey, uh, thanks so much for joining. I just want to start by uh, finding out how did you get started playing pool? Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, I've been asked this question a few times. Um, you know, back when I was probably 12 or 13, um, uh, I'm you know from a small town in Georgia, so we didn't ever have a whole lot to do there during the summertime. Um, you know, when we out of school for three months. So me and my friends would always pick one thing to do each summer, like we might play softball all summer. Uh, we might shoot, decide to shoot, play basketball all summer. Anyway, we'd always pick something. Well, this one summer, we decided we want to go to the, the local little convenience store we have. Well, it was only one or two, and uh, play video games. So that was going to be our deal for the whole summer. So we went, went down there first day after school. And uh, we started playing these video games. Well, they had probably two or three in this little store. didn't have many. But um, they would never change the games out because, you know, it was a small town. So uh, anyway, we got really good at the video games pretty fast. So it got boring. And uh, we decided, you know, hey, let's go in the back of the store right here. It was a couple of pool tables. So um, we uh, we decided to go back there kind of the second half of the summer and uh, started playing some pool. And, and we all liked it and uh, you know after that after that summer probably my friends never played pool and I kept going and you know here I am so you kept going when was the moment that you kind of realized you could be pretty good at the the sport um that's a good question um I don't know if I ever actually realized it I was just um you know I knew how much I enjoyed playing and you know I knew that you know well me being a youngster you know I, I definitely always said oh yeah I want to do this for a living. I want to play, you know, um, all the time. I want to make money. Well, you know, as a young person, you know, you don't, you're not going to hear what anybody else says. You know, you're going to know as much as anybody. So um, that kind of got in my mind early. And you know, being uh, you know being from small town, you know, I have to if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do do it all out. So um, you know, that's kind of what I decided. And I started getting better and better and better. Um, you know, every seemed like every month I'd get a little bit better. But, um, you know, um, next thing you know, I just kind of was playing, started playing the tour tournaments, and, and uh, you know, it's 30 years later. So you started playing the tour, and was there a moment, you know, because I, I can imagine with, with anyone, you start playing the tour, and you're kind of the new guy, and you're kind of getting your footing. Was there a moment where you kind of arrived on tour, a certain tournament where you just, like, showed out and just played great? Well, um, 
that probably a couple of years after I joined the tour or something, probably. Uh, but I noticed, I know, I remember my first tournament I played in. Uh, I went there. It was in uh, Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, I had to play in. Uh, trying to think, I think my first match might have been like Jimmy Mattia, and I think uh, my next match might have been Bobby Hunter. Anyway, a couple guys. I think I played Wade Crane and Miserac and Efren in the tournament. Um, mm-hmm. And I, the Miserac Hill Hill, and I lost Efren. Uh, I remember running, I think it was four or five racks out the gate on Efren, and he come back with six right after. So, uh, you know, that was my probably when I was probably playing the best that I have at the time. And, uh, you know, my first time coming out, and you know, I started getting some looks at. And, and uh, anyway, it kind of went a little bit, went pretty good after that. Who would you say was your biggest rival? Um, well, we had a few, definitely. Uh, probably myself. It probably would have been Efren or, or Earl, probably. Uh, especially through the 90s, um, you know, Earl and I was a was a top Americans pretty much through the 90s, and um, you know, we, we were always the ones mainly talked about, and so, you know, we we always had a, a rivalry going on, and uh, of course, Efren was the the one that we had to look at every time. Um, so, um, you know, between them, there was a few. You know, I always had tough matches with Bustamante. Um, uh, you know, of course, Buddy Hall was one of my toughest matches. Uh, so I don't know, just uh, myself, but I, I would guess rivals probably have to be Earl and Efren myself. Yeah. So I've talked to a number of players who have competed against Earl, and you know they've shared some stories about some challenges, you know, and some tough times they've had playing Earl. Have you had uh, those types of moments playing Earl? Uh, in a, in a probably quick uh, quick answer, uh, totally yes. I've had times um probably i had more tough times when i first started coming out playing and uh for the first you know six seven years maybe um it just seems like it was uh we we went at it you know constantly and and uh you know we, we always had words for each other and stuff like that but uh as we got older you know i think i calmed down a little bit more and um you know was able just to 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 handle earl a little bit better you know after that so um you know, as I got older, it got to where it wasn't near as big of a problem. Who would you say was the biggest character that you ran into out on the road? Uh, character. Um, well, I went on the road a little bit with Keith McCready. He was he was a great character. Um, he kept me all the time. Um, there was a few good characters, you know, that that I've mixed it with. Um, of course, Earl. You know, can't you can't really discount him any at all when it comes to that. Um, probably, you know, I don't know. I guess maybe Keith or Earl, somebody like that 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 can that can command attention. You know, and and then you know, not disappoint. You know, any at all. It would probably be one of them. Um, you know, I I went around with Swanee. You know, Jay Swanson a little bit. He was a he was a character. Um, so that's. There's a lot of them in pool that, you know, definitely. Un- so, yeah, I think, you know, I always ask about the characters because I think that's one thing, you know, for people who are who are around the game and, you know, I've been around the game for a long time. I'm not quite the player you've been by any stretch, um, but, you know, we get to know the characters. And I think that's one thing that kind of the industry of pool hasn't done the best job of is really highlighting the characters. You know, it's right. it's almost like, well, 
let's have you guys dress up in a tuxedo vest and make believe that you know you're a total gentleman and you know i think you are but a lot of the guys they were just characters they love to have fun they love to cut up you know do you think that had an impact on the popularity of the sport over the years um i think so um you know i i think if if uh you know we had a marketing group or you know one of the companies in the industry that, that took it amongst themselves you know to go out and to you know exploit the characters you know per se i guess and um you know show them to the to the public i think we could have had a good fan base um you know i know i know the golfers do that you know i know of course the basketball players any of them that's one thing they do and um i think that would have been very important i mean you know uh because the only ones that we all kind of know is you know we, we know them from you know from just from pool matches and, and being around them but we're just a real small group you know uh that plays pool and is in the industry so you know to reach the outside you know fan base uh, we would have needed something like that i think yeah what was your most crushing defeat in in your pool career um well i had a few but um Probably the one that set set with me probably the most, my guess is, and probably still does to a to a small point, would probably have been the one where Tommy Kennedy beat me, uh, in the US Open final and I think it was what ninety ninety two, I think. And um, you know, I know at the time, you know, of course, you know, the US Open was one thing that you know, one big tournament that, that all the Americans want to win. It'd be in the US Open, so um, you know, that was a, and I was a, I was a pretty good sized favorite going into the final. Tommy and I had, had many matches, you know, leading up to that, you know, uh, playing in tournaments and stuff like that. And, uh, I felt like I was really ready to win, you know, at the time. And, um, you know, I felt very confident, you know, going into the match and then, uh, for the match for me to, you know, lose nine games in a row, that was just a, that was a crushing thing for me. And, uh, you know, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy with, uh, you know, Tommy, that's, that's fine. But, uh, you know, for me at the, at the moment, it took me a while, um, you know, and I mean, it, you know, uh, definitely still sits with me today a little bit, but, uh, but it's all well and good. Yeah. Uh, how do the best players of today compare to you and your prime? Um, you know, I, I, I get asked that a lot. Um, I think, you know, the, the players of, of the past and let's say in my generation or, or uh, you know even before that um i think plays a different style game than that um and i think it's because um that the players today was forced to play the style of game which is rack your own balls try to set the balls up and and you know run out that way that's kind of the, what the game has went to and as you know as you see you know they're changing rules trying to get the so many balls pass the head string to stop that, trying to play 10 ball to stop that. There's all kind of different uh, uh, ways they're trying to stop it. And, and they have it, the, the group of players that has come up in the last 15 or 20 years, uh, that is their main mindset nowadays is to try to figure out how to, how to uh, you know, set the rack up, you know, and so they can, they can just break. And, and they don't see... You know, the hard thing is they don't see anything wrong with with that, the, the way it's played. And, and I am totally opposite of that. 
you know, I believe that has hurt the game. Um, I believe you don't see near as many kick shots as you used to. You don't see near as much safety play as you used to. You don't see the tough, the really tough one ball that that usually is what you have to do, you know, when you're breaking the balls hard and you have to play a couple safeties where you're not usually not going to get something real easy. You're going to have to, you know, try to make a, a tougher shot to start with. And I just think them parts of the game, you know, no, not meaning that the guys nowadays can't do that. They can. They have all the talent in the world, all the brains and everything else. But they're not forced to do that. Um, the game has took a, a, a different path. And by them, you know, setting the racks up and, and doing it nowadays, the, the concept of the game itself has changed. Whereas when we used to all play, we would get in, just break the ball as hard as we could without trying, without scratching. Uh, everybody would do that. I'm talking about guys that didn't break well, you know, um, even the guys that, that, that broke better than others. Everybody done that. And, and then you took the game as it laid. You know, it wasn't a setup game. It wasn't nothing that, you know, you're not shooting the same shot to start the game out with, you know, you know, in the, you know, the, over and over and over like like they do now. And I just think that I, I hate to say it, but I think that guys back in them days was more, um, I guess you would say, more mentally tough hmm. because had to, to endure that because it's the kind of the fear of the unknown. You know, we're all kind of scared of what we can't see, you know, and the fear of it. Uh, so back nine balls kind of looked at it that way because you never knew what was going to happen. You know, whoever's breaking, you never knew what, what the shot was going to be. You, didn't, you wasn't prepared for it. You know, you just kind of prepared and then took it when it, when it came up there. Uh, nowadays, um, you know, I watch some of the matches on, on the stream or I'm watching that and I watch if guys, if they don't stop the one ball near the side after the break within three or four inches, they get very, very upset. Yeah. I, good God, you know what I would give for that shot that they're having right there? Uh, you know, it would just be like, a, it would be like Christmas time come early. You know, you shoot, we, you know, and I'm not saying that the, that the guys nowadays, like I said, can't play with the older guys. Of course they can. They're the best players in the world nowadays. They're 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 you know as good as any of us ever was. You know, it's the group. But the but the way they're that they have to play the game. And then of course I'm gonna get pushback for this. You know, I'm gonna get you know people coming out saying, oh well, I'm either bitter or or uh, you know it's a totally different game nowadays. The game itself has never changed. The rules of it has. Okay, and and so for people to say, well, the game, you know, the game has changed. The game is still the same. We still shoot balls in the hole. We still play nine ball. It's still nothing. That, but the actual concept of it, the rules has made it different. And so, I think that's been a big hurt to the fans. Uh, my opinion is because. You know, I remember the first year that it was really, really discussed um, was uh, it was a year after the U.S. Open when Corey Dewey won the U.S. Open. Him and him in the finals, 11 nothing. Okay, now you're talking about two guys that, that, that went all the way through the U.S. Open and then one another guy beaten, beaten uh, won 11 nothing. And so that will tell you a little bit of the story there that the game has changed and the, and the rules have changed in it. 
to allow somebody to do something like that. I mean, you know, you, you're not going to beat Mika Emmer 11 nothing. You know, especially in the finals of U.S. Open when supposedly that was the hardest tournament to win, you know, all year that we played because of the grueling, you know, schedule, the longer matches, everything's tough. Well, when this happened, we started did started taking notice from it, and uh, some of the, I remember getting a call from Barry Berman, you know, a few months later, and says, uh, Johnny, we've run into a problem. I said, okay, what is this? And uh, he says that some of the fans that that were prepaid every year coming to watch U.S. Open uh, said that if it was just, if it, if it's being played the same way as it was, they wasn't going to come the next year. They got very bored with it and they didn't enjoy themselves. I guess fans have been coming forever. So Barry said, what do we do? And I said, well, I'm not exactly sure. I said, you know, the only thing we can we can really try to do is talk with the players and say, listen, we're not going to have this salt break anymore. Um, it's driving fans away. They're not seeing any, you know, excitement in the game like they used to, and they're, and they're, and they're speaking out. And so uh, that just didn't go anywhere. You know, we couldn't get the, you know, um, you know, the players to to buy into the to the fact that um, hey, you know watching the same thing over and over in a game, in a pool game, is boring. They they buy into that. And, uh, well, wait a minute. No, this is within the rules. You know, we're just trying to win. I get that part. You know, I get it. Well, I'm not I, I'm not saying that the players done anything wrong, you know, that went and done this. Not at all. They, they figure out a way to try to go, you know, and, and Corey was the mastermind behind it. He started it out. All people did was just follow him. Mm -hmm. Corey. Corey didn't do anything wrong for him because he went out and he figured out a way to make the game easier to try to win. And I can't fault him for that. I fault um, basically the people that supposedly had the the game's best interest at heart, okay, and say, okay, we can't let this blow out of proportion because we already see the first remnants of it. And if it's continued to, to go on and on, you know, it's going to be a problem. So um, I remember I was doing the, um, the, you know, I was kind of, I had a pretty good voice back then for the players to listen to. So I called a players meeting at the U.S. Open before the next event. Um, and I called and I said, listen, guys, I said, we had a problem last year with the fans. I said, how about, you know, we had no you know, no business people in there, no companies. It was just us players. And so, uh, you know, Rodney was up there with me, and we were just kind of saying, hey, listen, there's a chance that we're going to lose a lot of fan base with what this is going on. And so we would like to just sit here and talk about it and like maybe all of us come to a, you know, an agreement amongst us players that says, okay, this is what we're going to do to preserve the game or not let, you know, and just see what happens. I mean, we didn't know guaranteed what would happen no matter what. And we got a lot of resistance, really a lot of resistance, namely Corey and, and you know, some of the guys that was, uh, that was you know, into this mindset also. And I remember saying that, that I said, okay, guys, okay, we're not going to vote against anything. I said, but y'all can mark my word right here. I'm telling y'all today, we're going to lose nine ball. I said, the game nine ball would never be the same 
unless we do something now. We are going to lose this game. And it wasn't long after that. We were going to 10 ball. We was going to rack the nine on the spot. Four or five balls past the head string, whatever the, the rules were. And I remember saying that, and they all looked at me like I was stupid. Yeah. And I said, this is going to happen. And uh, I said, I hope it's not, because I think nine balls is one of the greatest games of all time. I really do. And, you know, I, I said, man, I said, some of the old players turning over in their graves right now. And, and I didn't know for a fact if that was. That was just I seen, you know, and I was talking with Barry and, and a couple of people that, that was talking with the fans that was that was in their minds. And I just said, man, this is this could be really bad. And I said, it's kind of blown out of proportion. It kind of builds a life of its own. I said, man, this is going to be really bad. And... You know, now we're talking about it today. I mean, you're talking 20 years later, and we're talking about it today. And, you know, it it has really hurt the game of nine. It, I think it's hurt the game of pool in the, in the you know, and, you know, and, and, I'm, I can't, and I'm not faulting any players for doing it. I'm definitely, please don't think I'm faulting Corey or anything like that. Uh, Corey, you know, Corey was a genius. I mean, I think he's an absolute, you know, genius on the pool table and i think that he came he sat there and studied he came up with a way to do something but in his mind you know hey i'm staying within the rules you know there's no rule with certain things they can't really put a rule on you know honest effort or anything like that you know i'm going to stay within the rules and this is how you know this is how i'm going to be able to win you know and um you know so i can't fault Corey. i just fault you know you know, I fought the game for, for kind of losing a lot of the, you know, I don't know, the grasp of it. And for people to say, well, the game is different nowadays, nowadays the technology. No, the tech, pool balls are still the same. Pockets are still the same. The game is still the same. You still do the same thing you always have. Yeah, you can look at technology with the new shaft or the, you know, new jump cues or, you know, blah, 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 all this stuff. The game itself is still the same. And so, you know, for us to, you know, I don't know, for, for to have three or four different um, skills in the game kind of taken away, meaning, you know, uh, kick shot. Yeah, yeah you're going to see kick shots, but with the jump cue and if, if guys are breaking easy, um, you know, you're not, how many kick shots are you going to see during a during match? Or say a race to nine with two top players playing. I mean, look at um, look at the match with. Uh, okay, I tell you, what, there's there's a good match you could you, if people want to go follow it. Look at the match that Ocolo and Shane just played. Okay, they just played a big gambling match. Now they were now, now they were racking nine on the spot, but they they had figured out they were making the one inside. So they both were doing it. I bet you right now, if you look back and you have to go through all the games, I mean, there's a lot, what 120 to 119. So you're going to be there a while. And, out how many kick shots there were, actual kick shots, you're going to be very surprised at the number you come back with. And then I could probably put, I can go back into an older match, maybe a race to 11, and, and you watch one of the older matches back in the old days when, when we were all breaking hard or anything, and look at and compare to percentages with the kick shots in a race to 11, as opposed to kick shots in a race to 120 with two of the top players. 
and I'm gonna bet you you'll be you'll be blown away. Which I don't even know what it is, but I bet you'll be blown away. And yeah, you know, Johnny, thanks for sharing all that. And you know, it kind of reminds me. I I recently interviewed uh, Ozzy Reynolds from CSI, who's running the Diamond. Uh, the big diamond pro tournament out there in Vegas, along with the BCAPL uh, championships and also the world predator world 10 ball now. And we were talking about like the point that Ozzy made is that we really have a participation sport and it's kind of gone away from being a spectator sport and we have to figure out a way to get it back to a spectator sport. And I think what you're talking about is kind of right up that alley, right? Uh, there was a time where, it was a spectator sport because it, there was such variety to it. And then that kind of changed with the way the rules were interpreted. And even I'll go so far as to say there's, you know, the requests that a lot of the players make now are opposite of what would make it a more friendly spectator sport in some ways, right? So long races. I love that Shane Dennis race and I bought it and I watched about 30 games of it. You know, I turned it on kind of the last day you know, uh, playing on tight pockets, you know, other things that the pros demand now that maybe make the game a little less appealing to the average person who might want to watch pool. Do you, do you think that's the case? By far, you, 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 uh, you're, you're speaking 100% there, um, right. I believe that, um, you know, and the thing is, you see you see these longer matches, even I play, um, you know, me and Irwin played a couple of exhibitions, and we played race to 30. Now, that's, that's too long. You know, when you're talking about getting people to sit there, now, we were in a couple of places that people really enjoyed it. And, and you know, Earl playing as fast as he does, it didn't, it didn't mean a race to 30, 30 normal people. You know, so uh, that we didn't take as long. But still, at the end of the day, a race to 30 is too long. You know, when you're talking about an exhibition match, you know, you're talking about uh, something for somebody to come watch for a period of time. So, um, yes, I agree that, and and the the way they they you know, of course, with the rules and the regulations and all this stuff, you kind of have to have a committee on each side to go in there and figure it all out. But um, you know, I think that yeah, I think that hurts you know hurts pool. That's hurt the spectator part of it. Um, you know, I don't know what the best thing to come to is. I don't know that, but. I'm just know that what's going on ain't working. Well, um, all right, switching gears, what was your biggest tournament victory? Uh, my biggest victory probably would have been, um, well, I guess it had to be one of the world championships probably. Um, the one I, when I beat, beat 192 was a, was a big one for me. You know, that got, kind of got me on the stage of winning and uh, got me recognized. So uh, that one, uh, uh, of course, the U.S. Open's a big one. That was a big one for me personally. Um, you know, and, and pretty much any of the Moscone Cup victories, man, that, that was always great. Um, you know, so I'm not sure I have a soft spot for pretty much all of them. Yeah. So you're obviously a household name in pool, and, uh, you know, let's go hypothetical here and say that people forgot who you were. Uh, and you had an opportunity to go out on the road and make some money right now. Which three players would you pick to go on the road with for one last hurrah? Lordy, Lordy. <laughs> good question. Um, well, Rodney would be my first pick. You know, him and I are good friends, and he just keeps me laughing at all times. So no matter what we do, it, 
I'm always laughing. So um, probably Rodney and then um, I would probably enjoy going out there with uh, one of the girls to see, see how they might want to go and make money, you know, with certain things like that. Um, maybe Allison, you know, something like that. Uh, that. I think that would be pretty fun. Um, and I, I did have a great time when I went out for a couple of weeks with uh, Darren Appleton. I had a great time with him. Him and I, him and I got along real good. Um, and of course, I don't throw out Earl. You know, as far as just making money, I can go out to Earl. We can, we can, you know, we usually get pretty good, uh, pretty good gigs to go out there and make some good money. Yeah. So over the course of your career, just watching you from afar, you know, there's been times where I've noticed that you've played faster and times where you've played slower. How do you feel about shot clocks? Uh, one of the comments as I was talking to people and telling them I might be interviewing you, a few people made the comment that they thought that you actually played better when you played faster in your career as opposed to slower. What are your thoughts about shot clocks and the pace of play? Well, I mean, just to say something about what the people said, I think they're right. Um, there's certain times when I, when I feel like I have played better under a shot clock in, in the years. Um, I think now I play, I'm not fast and I'm not slow, so I'm kind of in the middle. So right now it's probably the pace of play that I would, that I probably enjoyed the most. Um, I think for a spectators, um, I think you have to have a shot clock. Uh, it's because the, you know, when, when people are trying to watch and understand having dead space, dead air time is no good. And I think this, uh, guys and I, and believe me, I, and it's not been the beneficial to me at times because I was a slower player. So shot clock killed me. But um, but I think um, if you're going to take it to the public, um, you're going to have to have a shot clock because the one thing you have to do is whatever time frame you're trying to film something and have it squeezed into a time frame. You know, I believe you have to have you know you, you have to have a shot clock to where you can kind of try to get you know a race to seven or a race to nine or whatever you're trying to put in a certain amount of time. You have a lot better chance to do that. And I think in the past. When there was no shot clock, um, you know, the match might be over 20 minutes, might be over two hours. So you can't base nothing. You can't plan nothing around that. And I just think that a shot clock definitely will help that. Can you describe for folks, you know, one of the things I try to do with this podcast is, you know, get some nuggets, extract some information from you that could help players out there that are maybe up and coming or just trying to improve. Um, can you describe kind of like mentally, your mental approach to the game or give any tips for people in terms of how they think about the game and, and focus on it mentally? Well, um, I guess if I was giving any tips, the main thing I would try to tell them is, um, you know, pool and, and making a pool shot is no different than, you know, shooting a basketball or hitting a golf ball or, you know, dribbling a basketball in, in that case. Um, I think it's all repetitive motion. And I think to do, you know, to be good at it, you, you have to get into the to the boring mindset is just do the same thing over and over and over. And um, so to me, I try to teach, uh, you know, pre-shot routines. I try to teach, um, you know, ways to think of the shot before you get down to it, um, to where you clear in your mind as much as you can. 
and not really having to work on you know getting over it. Oh, if my hand in the right position or you know is is my you know left leg pointed the right way or anything like that. you know I'm 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 not you know proponent of getting down trying to work on things then. So um, you know my advice to be is uh, nowadays you have such an easy avenue to watch pool you know with the YouTube and um, the AccuStats videos, all these Facebook, you have, you just have unlimited access, and I think use them, use them to your advantage, and just not try to copy other people's style, but maybe take a couple things from each player uh, that you watch and uh, say, well, you know, I like the way he, you know, his bridge isn't on this shot, or I like the way he strokes the ball for that draw shot, any any kind of thing. And just kind of put it into your own game, and you and to where you'll be more well-rounded. Yeah, thank you for that. So you mentioned the Moscone Cup before, and how great those victories were. And you know, for years and years, a lot of the fans in the United States watched Europe win. You know, year after year. And then the last couple of years, the United States kind of found a spark and was able to get it done. You know, what do you think? Uh, kind of led to that because if you look at it on paper, I think Europe's favored pretty much every year, right? Yeah. So, so what happened these last couple of years? Did you notice anything about the team or the makeup of the team? Well, um, the one thing I was noticing is, is um, you know, they, they, um, I don't know, they, they didn't seem as afraid to take a tough shot, okay, to, to try to bait one, no matter who it was. And I, one thing I did notice, uh, as uh, far as the team, the number five guy, whoever that may be, you know, on the team um, performed. Mm. That's what you have to have, just like Europe has to have that in order to beat the United States. They got to have each player, you know, performing. Um, so the number four and five guy on the list needs to get up and do their job. And I think that's one thing you, you did get to see um, the Americans the last couple of years is I think they're number four and five. Uh, players got up and done their job, and and I think that was the key to their victories. I think that was a big deal because whenever I was playing on the teams, you know, if if I number four or five guy didn't get up and and do you know at least do something to help, we struggled hard in winning. And I you know I just think that was a big deal for us. Yeah, you know, one of the things I want to do, obviously, I talked about, you know, getting some advice for players. But the other thing is just sharing some stories, you know, that are out there. So I'm wondering if there's, you know, I know you probably have plenty, you could probably write a book or two. Um, are there any funny or interesting stories that you could share with the audience, just something that happened out on the road that, that you'd like to share? Uh, there's plenty of them. I'm trying to trying to put a couple together here. Um well, I mean, I guess when I went out on the road with Appleton, um, and we went out for a couple of weeks, you know, I knew some of their some of their tricks they play on each other, you know, the Europe, the the English style or, or European style. So I I was privy to to some of the details on some of the stuff they played on each other, and that didn't uh, compute with my with my thinking too much. And I told him, I said, okay, now we're going to come up with with an agreement that how far we can go because both of us like to play tricks on the other one. We're always joking. So I said, now in my mindset, there, there's a way that you can go past the line pretty easy on some of this stuff that y'all do. And I said, uh, and so we remember me and Darren sat there with a piece of paper and we were writing down how far we can't, 
we can't take it. And uh, we never did. We did good. I think we both did pretty good. Um, you know, I guess uh, one of the stories he told, and this is, ain't some story happened with me, but uh, just one of the stories uh, that, well, i tell you, when me and Darren was out, we was in, I think we might have been in, I can't remember, Nebraska or somewhere. We went and did a show. And when the show was over, um, you know, we wasn't going to leave that next go to next I think it was a it was a weekend and so um we wasn't gonna leave for another day after that so I said uh, what are we gonna do and they said Darren said well let's have a couple of drinks and I said well I don't drink much but I said yeah I'm kind of in a safe environment I said that's no problem so we sat there and started having a couple of shots and enjoying customers you know we're sitting there telling stories and messed around at the pool room and having a good time and then uh we said ah well I'm, I said well I'm tired I said I want to go back and it was probably midnight a little later or whatever so uh, we said, well, hey, we're, we're hungry. So what was there to eat this time? They said, well, there's a McDonald's right next to our hotel. I said, oh, good enough for me. So Darren's in the car with, with uh, I think, the, the owner. We're in, we're in the car, me and Mark Cantrell's in the owner with the owner's wife. So she's taking us through the McDonald's. Okay, well, Darren was with the other owner, and he was going to take him to the hotel, I guess. So... We're in line ordering, and we hear Darren screaming at us from the parking lot. He's at the, in the parking lot of the hotel right next to it. And so I'm like, what is going on? He's just screaming. Darren didn't have way too many drinks, okay, way past the time where he should have stopped. And so here he comes, and so he said, well, I want to get some food. And I said, well, I don't understand what you want to do. Go get the car and y'all well, no, he's over there, and I, I said, well, what are you going to do? It? So Darren decides he's going to walk up to the in the drive-thru with no car. <laughs> so he's, he's yelling into the speaker. We're already at the window. Now, he's behind us, and I'm telling, the, I'm telling Mark and him, I said, just let him do it. i got to see this. <laughs> so, yeah, and that's about midnight, 1 o'clock. You know, all they got is the drive-thru open, and he's screaming into this thing, I want to get the hamburger. And, and, you know, you ever notice Darren when he gets to – when he gets a little bit drinky, you know, he'll get stuttering a little bit. Okay. So now he's trying to scream at this girl and he stuttered and he's got an English accent. So I'm just dying laughing, knowing that there ain't no way she can understand nothing he's saying. So now nothing happens. So she finally tells him, sir, you can't order food without a car. And so he didn't understand that. So he came up to our car and we wasn't going to let him in. He was wrong. I said, I'm not letting you in here. Well, he somehow, we get a window down, he comes over, he jumps into the car, right, dives in, and his feet's hanging out. Now the people in the, in the window's looking down, and he's screaming, and he's going loud as he can, just screaming, his feet's out the window. Finally, he gets in there, and we order all this food. I'm talking about we order mounds of food. And, um, of course, I don't even think he ever ate them. He got back, and most of it ended up on the floor, and... Uh, the milkshake. He bought a milkshake and he ended up throwing it uh, somewhere and it's all over the bed. <laughs> so anyway, that was kind of a, uh, one of the funny nights for me. I enjoyed that one. Well, Johnny, you know I'm going to use that now as ammunition to get Darren on so he, That's could, so he could reverse it on you. Now, he might have a different take on that, which uh, <laughs> hard to get a different take on it, but I'd like to hear yeah. 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, I have a question here from a mutual friend of ours, Mike Davis. And, uh, you know, last night I said, hey, I'm about to interview Johnny Archer. You got a good question for him? And he was he just started laughing. And he said he wants to know how you can see that invisible lint that you pick up from the table that nobody else can see. <laughs> Mike Davis, don't know. He, uh, I don't know. He, he knows their stuff down there. <laughs> knows it that uh, if I pick something up, it's because it got in my eye somewhere. So anyway, and maybe I, maybe I don't see as good as I used to, so it might not be as, really be there like I think. You know, Johnny, I actually defended you because I told Mike, if there's like a little bubble gum wrapper or something on the floor and I get down to shoot, even though I can't see it once I get down, I got to go and pick yeah. it up because it's in my mind that it's there, you know? Same with me. I lost you a sec. Yeah, I know it. Yeah. Okay. So I just got a couple more questions. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, so I know you're an avid golfer. Um, what sport requires more skill, golf or pool? Um, let's see. Um, I don't know. I think physical skill um, is probably going to, my guess, physical skill probably be, I don't know, probably golf, my guess is mental aspect of it and um you know understanding a lot of things about the game and all i think pool yeah. i don't think so johnny i know you're looking to open a room uh do you want to talk about that share it with folks so that way once it opens they'll know where to find you well it's going to be in um right the edge of norcross which is about 20 minutes from atlanta um it's a place called peachtree corners a little city and um you know, with the COVID, it definitely halted us from opening, you know, for a while. So, um, you know, it's like anything where ever, I've been called every day, you know, hey, when are you opening, when are you opening? Um, it's going to be, uh, it's probably going to be called Archers. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, uh, we're trying to decide the name right now a little bit more. Um, but my guess is going to be first of the year. Okay. So what is your biggest regret? from your pool career any regrets um regrets um i don't well one thing i wish i'd have, you know save some money that's for sure i made a lot of it i uh, wish i had a but you know hey you know that's this life you gotta go on with that but um um not really not even big regrets probably um you know if i you know if i know if i knew back then some things i know now you know i'd have done business a little different you know I would have probably chose to go to a different couple different pool tournaments than other ones you know or something like that but um as far as big regrets probably I don't really have a whole lot so kind of following up on that if you meet somebody right now they have some talent there you know they they seem to love the game they're 18 years old they're a freshman in college you know going for a business degree but they want to try to be a pro pool player which what would you tell them well um you know, you know, a lot of people are going to tell them, hey, you know, don't do this because it's so hard and, you know, go into something else. You know, if I'd have had somebody to tell me that and I listened to it, then I wouldn't have done what I did. So I can't be a, you know, um, hypocrite and tell them, you know, not to. It is difficult. It is hard, but it's a very rewarding game. And, um, you know, my opinion, you know, we need the younger people to get up and, and, and take the reins and, and go and play to keep the game going or make it bigger. Um, so, um, you know, I would love to, to, 
talk with some young people, you know, and, and share some of my stories and, and uh, things that it, who knows it might go and help them, you know, uh, do things. But I, you know, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to see more more younger people get up and, and play and, you know, do it professionally. Also, you know, uh, I know the the money payout is very difficult. It's hard, but I mean, on the other hand, you know, you do get to do what you love to do. And so that's a good thing. So, uh, you know, I'm all for, you know, players coming out trying to do it. You know, I can't tell them not to do something when, you know, you know, I I, I definitely didn't need to hear that advice when I was younger either. Yeah, so I ask everybody this question, and I'll kind of close it with this question, Johnny. You've been very generous with your time, and I, I really appreciate it. Um, who would you like to see me interview on this podcast? Who would be a good person to kind of have on here, maybe two or three people uh, that maybe you'd even tune in and listen to? Um, well, anytime Earl's doing any kind of podcast, I'd listen to that just to hear whatever he's got to say. Um, I think Earl would be a good one. Um, I'd be interested in hearing like um, I'd be interested in hearing like a like a Chinese player hmm. because I know they're brought up different than we are. You know the you know the government's behind them and they're playing. So, but I would I would really if they'll tell the truth. You know I don't know how much uh, you know if they can't tell the truth, but um, I'd love to hear kind of how they start out and what they did. You know with the government. You know. Um, that that implemented them to be able to to do what they do. Um, so I would like to hear something like that now. I say I'd like to hear their stories. You know, Johnny, I've heard that a few times where people are saying they want to hear from the Chinese players or Chinese Taipei, and it's always a challenge thinking about the language barrier. And uh, somebody was just encouraging me the other day. You know what? You should do it. Find a translator and just do it. And now that you said that, I'm going to do it. And, you know, even if we just have the, you know, the words scrolling over the screen as they're talking, you know, translating what they're saying, I think we're going to do it, you know, because I think, like you said, the environment that they grow up in is so much different than here. So I think it could be pretty beneficial for people to hear that story. Yeah, I mean, and like you said, you know, I don't know, you know, not like I'm, I'm definitely not for any dictator countries or, or anything like that, socialist countries. So I don't know exactly if that plays any part uh, in any of their upbringing. You know, I don't know if their country's like that. But um, but so, but I would like to hear kind of how they're put out there. And like I said, I'd hope they tell the truth. You know, and and can share. You know, without you know getting in any trouble or anything like that. So I would, uh, you know, I'd love to hear kind of. You know, how the government got behind them. You know, what is the government's influence, you know, with them? Maybe we can learn from that and uh, try to implement some over here. You know, I think, uh, you know, because, you know, bottom line is you can see they're very successful at what they're doing. They're putting out great players and they're putting out, you know, you, you play a Chinese player in one of the international tournaments, you've got your hands full, no matter if you've heard of them or not. So I think. You know, I think, and I know that that, that they're not going to send, you know, weak Chinese players over to to represent them. So, um, yeah, I'd like to hear that. I kind of like to hear how they do it, and uh, you know, what the success is, the pros and cons behind it. I'll start working on that. So, Johnny, thanks again. Any last thoughts that you want to leave the audience with? Uh, words of wisdom, something from Johnny Archer. Well, um, 
I guess anything, just stay true to yourself, stay true to the game, enjoy the game. You know, um, you know, my girlfriend now, uh, Jenna, she loves to play bank pool. Okay, now she hasn't been playing that long, but she's taken up a fascination with bank pool. And I was lucky enough to, to know John Brumback, a good buddy of mine, and we went up there and got some good lessons for her and everything, spent some time. But she is so infatuated with the game and playing and watching. And I think um, with her mind opened up to that, um, I think it's a very, very, very good thing to do because, uh, you know, she's not experiencing a lot of the bad elements you know, that comes along or anything. So, um, you know, the game itself is beautiful. You know, the pool game itself is beautiful, whether it's bank pool or nine ball or, you know, one pocket. You know, everybody has their own little, uh, you know, certain games they love to watch and play. But, um, you know, each one is just very unique on its own. And um, I think just enjoy the game and stay true to it and, and, you know, try to learn the best you can and just go out and enjoy it. Because if you're not enjoying playing it, you know, go do something else.